This is Scriptlock, where we talk about storytelling in video games. I'm Nick Folkman. I'm Max Folkman, and today's guests are Mark Laidlaw and Chris Gardner. Mark is an author, game writer, and designer. After reviewing games for Wired, he joined Valve and worked on Half-Life, Half-Life 2, Half-Life Episodes 1 and 2, and Dota. He's also written novels including Neon, Neon Lotus and The 37th Mandala. Chris is the narrative director at Fail Better Games, having worked up from being a staff writer and head writer there. He's written on Fall in London, The Last Court, Sunless Skies, and Sunless Seas. Thanks for coming on, you two. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So, so we'll start with how you two broke into games. Mark, do you want to go first? Sure. I'll, I'll try to keep it brief because I know I've talked about this before. I really got in uh, through game journalism. I was reviewing a lot of games for Wired Magazine, and they thought of me as the game guy so they gave me an assignment to uh investigate the making of quake which at that time didn't really have a name they just knew the guys who made doom were making something new and they thought they would try to put somebody on the inside there and uh write <clears throat> about that process so that led to coming to the attention of the guys starting up valve uh, in the early days, and I got into quake level map mapping and things like that. That was sort of the hand to hand part of it. But meanwhile, having written stories for years and years and just discovered games, I was really motivated to to try my hand in a in a new medium. But it really happened through game journalism, which is something I, I recommend a lot of people who want to be writers spend some time reviewing games thinking about them that way and understanding how they're put together if you're a writer it's it's a good way to get started did you want to be a journalist like before then or you did you want to be just a writer in general no i wanted to justify the purchase of a computer (laughs) 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 i i played like uh i played mist at a friend's house and a little bit of doom and had to stop playing because we went home so i just had like a amber monitor word processor so I couldn't finish playing Mist on that and once I had plunked down the money for a, a gaming machine I thought I would try to justify it by, by playing more games and writing about them so I had a friend at Wired Magazine who gave me like a giant garbage bag full of CD-ROMs took those <laughs> home and started playing and trying to make sense of them but it was sort of like to figure out how to justify this investment which was not going to pay for itself through the the writing that i was doing um but no i didn't really want to be a journalist but i was happy to you know try writing all different kinds of things it was fun play games and think about them and write about them what kind of stuff were you writing before you got into game journalism years and years of writing science fiction fantasy horror that sort of thing i'd written like five or six novels well I think I'd written five novels and then when I got into games I um, mentioned to my agent that I was interested in games and he some of his partners at William Morris Agency represented this uh, small Japanese studio Synergy in Japan and they were trying to turn this game gadget into sort of a whole media entertainment empire with TV shows and movies and books and all that and I got the job of doing a tie-in novel that went with that game Gadget. So around the same time that 
I was going to meet with the id guys in Texas. I also um, met the Synergy guys in Tokyo. And sort of the one-two punch of that, watching these very different studios with some shared similarities of how they created these worlds just really excited me. So writing a, a book set in one of those worlds was sort of the first time I started thinking about how to how you would flesh one of these things out. Um, yeah. <laughs> Do you remember what some of the similarities were between the two studios? Well, it was August. They were both extremely hot. Lots of crows. <laughs> it was weird. Uh, Texas and Tokyo were very similar in August, like the same sounds. It was kind of feeling of a small embattled group of people with, with a vision. Synergy was very artist-driven. The, the, leader, the lead designer there was, was an artist and multimedia guy. Uh, and it seemed like everybody just kind of did what he said. <clears throat> he designed, did a lot of the design himself. Uh, Id, there was a lot more back and forth and people coming up with crazy ideas and not really in a unified way. And they, uh, they didn't really have a way that I could figure out how to plug in in terms of storytelling. What excited me more about Synergy was they kind of built their world from the ground up around a sense of, of a story and some kind of mystery. But, you know, they all were creating these worlds using, uh, computers so stuff that looked previously been drawn or modeled and clay and animated on a really large scale maybe for a movie or something these guys were doing just in one small office uh so that was something similar about it that that attracted me to the to both of them and i would have loved to have gone to work in tokyo but that wasn't happening (laughs) would you do it today if i were in that position then it would have been, well, the, the Tokyo studio would have been pretty hard to integrate into. They had, um, it was funny, there was, there was a guy there who I thought of as their me. Like, it was Tokyo in the summer, and he was wearing, like, flannel overshirt and had horn rim glasses and just sort of looked like the, the Tokyo version of me. And I thought, oh, I could be that guy. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, my attempt was to try to infiltrate as one of these places as a, as a writer and figure out what I could add that they didn't really have. A lot of times that seemed like when you would talk to these guys about putting a story into their game, if they were even aware that thinking into those terms, they didn't really know how to go about it and they were, they'd kind of fumble through it. And since they hadn't spent a lot of time about storytelling for its own sake, they tended to come up with stuff that was, either obvious or stuff that they were all kind of excited about without from the point of view of, was this be a good story or is this just something that we think is cool in the culture? Like the synergy guys were very into David Lynch and twin peaks and stuff. So <laughs> you could see that influence all over their work. And I think in, um, whereas the id guys were more into, you know, movies, science fiction movies and that sort of science fiction horror thing from alien and, and that, that sort of stuff they hadn't sat down in the first place to just tell a story. Although there is the example of the early script for, I think it was doom. Maybe it was quake that Tom Hall and those uh, mostly Tom Hall had put together when he was still at id that you could see them early on trying to do a narrative science fiction horror thing, which would unfold through in a sort of cinematic way. 
and they just gave up and nothing was really ready for it. The technology wasn't there and the industry might not have been receptive yet. It would just been basically impossible. I think that's why you see something like Half-Life happening when it did. It was just <clears throat> the point where you could finally do that thing. I, I, I don't think that we were necessarily the first people to think of doing it, just the first ones who actually had the people and the tools and, and, and everything in place to, to pull it off finally. Because um, it's kind of an obvious thing you would think uh, more people would want, would want to do. You mentioned Synergy being into Twin Peaks. Did you, there was an article recently about how, I don't know if this is like the designer of Link to the Past, but was saying that they were really influenced by Twin Peaks yeah. and David Lynch and how in different worlds and they want to put that design into the game, which I guess no one ever heard of until recently. Yeah, well, and actually uh, one interesting thing, this Synergy Studios, um, David Lynch was into them. Like right after Gadget came out, he was going to do a game with Synergy. Oh, um, this is the boat one. Woodcutters from Fiery Ships. Yeah. <laughs> um, which, having seen Twin Peaks Return, I, you kind of know who the woodcutters are. And <laughs> it's like, it would have been, a re- I think it would have been some ac- further exploration of his weird mythos. Um, but I think they had an ex-Blizzard designer was going to be working on it. And I had just started at Valve when I, heard about it and I was begged them to let me do the tie-in novel <laughs> I was trying to get permission from Gabe and everybody and Synergy guys were fine with it but it, it didn't never went very far um, and they Synergy did another game they started another game called Underworld I think which I didn't see very much of it it seemed like a, like a mystery set on a submarine again it was just too only a few shots they ever released of it, but yeah, there was a lot of really bizarre possibilities back then for things that would have probably been extremely uncommercial. <laughs> the, uh, but that was one. Actually, I would think one thing about the Synergy guys was they um, they were sort of at their core extremely uncommercial and sort of arty, but they had all these these guys that the agency telling them, oh, this is going to be big. This can be really big. We're going to have TV shows. It's going to be, synerg- you know, gadget TV shows. And they, when I visited them, they were sure all this was going to happen. And I just kind of went, hmm, okay. Well, I'm not, uh, I'm just going to enjoy the ride. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't actually see this being a huge breakout mainstream hit. But, you know, David Lynch was, was big then. And it seemed like it, it was easy to, to believe anything was possible. So, well, my point was that at id, I think they were a little more pragmatic about it. They they were making something that was intended to be more mainstream, uh, wider appeal, and and they'd already had plenty of controversy around Doom and things. So they they knew they had an audience and they they had a hook. They just kind of kept following their instinct. They were already were finding themselves right in the mainstream. Mm-hmm. So that I mean that was both. Of, Studios had a different approach to the to the stuff that I that I thought was interesting. All oh, that was fascinating. Um, Chris, how did you break into the industry? I also got into the industry through video game journalism. Uh, ages and ages and ages ago, there was a website called um, Games Domain in kind of some of the primordial days of the internet, and um, I had a friend who worked there, and Games Domain got sent a copy of a game called King of Dragon Pass 
which is a very uh, weird niche game based on a, a very kind of baroque tabletop role-playing game. Um, and they got this game and they had no idea what to do with it. And uh, the company that made the game kept kind of calling them up and saying, so we sent you this review copy, are you ever going to review it? And uh, in the end, in, in desperation, my friend who worked there said, oh, I know someone who likes this nerdy nonsense. He might know what this is. Um, and so they sent it to me to review. Uh, and I did, and I'd already played the game, and I really liked it. And um, uh, that led to doing a bunch of other reviews for them. Um, and then I wrote a few articles um, for places. And um, when Fail Better started, I did some freelance work for them on Fallen London. I wrote, yeah, I wrote a bunch of Fallen London content. And then uh, Fail Better Games got a contract to do a game in partnership with Channel 4, which is a British TV show, and Childline, which is a charity in the UK concerned with protecting children. And it was a game that was meant to be... It was meant to be a sort of... Um, well, it was a sort of interactive comic book. Um, but it was about a group of children, uh, a group of kind of teenagers living in a dystopian high-rise tower all of whom were dealing with the suicide of a friend. And it was kind of all about the, uh, the effect it had on them and how they got through it. And we did a, a bunch of research. We had um, lots of um, interviews with kids who'd been through that experience and felt that they needed... Uh, they had a, a couple of writers at that point, but they needed to bring someone else on board to write half of that game. Um, and because I'd done work for them and uh, I knew the uh, then CEO, they asked me to come on board and we wrote that game and it was extremely kind of painful. The subject matter was quite painful, but also the um, there are a lot of uh, people moving around in positions in our two contacts, in, in the other two kind of companies involved. And when we kind of finished the game and we were ready to release it, it sort of transpired that not everyone at Childline was kind of aware of what it was. And when it sort of reached the upper echelons of Childline that someone had commissioned a game about this material, they went, you went a game based on what? No, 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 no. <laughs> um, and it, uh, it was sort of released incredibly quietly. And there was basically no mention of it at all. And about eight people played it. Um, but some of those people had had kind of experiences that the game touched on and they wrote to us saying it had made a huge difference to them so I consider it worth it <laughs> um, yeah. and, and certainly we'd put it we'd put a lot of effort into it it was a really beautiful uh, the art was beautiful um, the, my writing partner who I wrote it with did some, she did some amazing work on it and we were kind of very proud of it but then I stayed on it fail better and yeah that's kind of how I got my foot in the door and I eventually moved up to head writer and then when uh, Alexis Kennedy moved on a few years ago to do other things, I moved up to uh, narrative director. So were you trying to be a game writer before you got into the industry? I don't think I really thought it was possible. I knew sort of intellectually that it happened, but I had no idea how to... I wasn't really angling for it or anything. I didn't like set it as a career goal or, or, or anything. I knew I wanted to be a writer, but yeah, I didn't think definitely I wanted to be a games writer. Um, but I played a lot of games and I loved games and I love story-based games. So when this kind of opportunity was handed to me, I, I jumped at it. Awesome. This is be like more of a question for both of you, but has either of your journalism backgrounds affected your game writing or the writing you do now? Like, did it help with maybe research skills? For me, uh, the research was 
just playing games. So that <laughs> already that fit nicely with what I was already doing. Um, I've done projects that needed a lot of research, and I kind of decided that was not for me. I'd rather do stuff that were ba- came more out of experience. Um, but I, I feel like writing. If if you've developed writing skills, you can solve a lot of problems with it. Mm-hmm. You can you can find a way to contribute in a lot of different areas. I always kind of thought of it that way. Like, well, I I'd like to write books. I'd like to write some journalism. I never set out for that to make a goal out of that. And, and I still really didn't feel it. I was never comfortable being called a journalist, especially because I was kind of writing popular feature kind of stuff. Definitely nothing uh, investigative or, or hard hitting about it. Like if I, if I ever found myself in a situation where there were like issues, for instance, in the id thing, some people didn't necessarily want to be included in the article as it was going to press. And I was like, I reported back to Wired and like, yeah, they, some of these guys don't really want to be part of this. And they're like, oh, well, they can't do that. <laughs> I was like, really? Uh, I guess this is the, the part of journalism that I, that I really wasn't uh, aware of. I, I didn't have any background in it. And I would never call myself a journalist, but more of a reviewer, you know, or essayist maybe. Mm-hmm. What about you, Chris? Yeah, same, I think. I, I feel like the word journalism should be saved for people who get shot at or you know, <laughs> spend, spend months combing over financial records or something. Uh, I think Mark's very correct that if you work on writing skills, they're applicable in many more areas than you would expect. And that was very useful uh, working at a small indie company where everyone had to wear lots of hats. Like when I started there, I had to do kind of community management i had to do a bunch of marketing stuff writing marketing copy and all that kind of stuff i, had, I still do a load of that or, or at least hone it uh i ran our first kickstarter that we did all this kind of stuff and I, I, the ability to turn something into a story turns out to be very useful in kind of many walks of life at fail better you started out as a staff writer then went to head writer and narrative director what are the differences between all those jobs like what were the things you had to do for each job it turns out you do less writing as you move through those jobs um so to start with i was doing lots and lots of kind of nose to the grindstone writing and um design for our games and yeah doing the community management stuff and that kind of thing when i moved to head writer uh, oh and doing a lot of um frontline support as well answering bug reports and uh helping players with you know problems with their account and all that kind of stuff um all of which was really useful grounding then when I became head writer, it was much more about helping people pitch uh, stories uh, and helping their kind of pitches be all they could be and lots of uh, reviewing of their content and editing it. And then moving on to narrative director, it's, I do uh, a lot of that stuff still, but also there's lots more of the kind of coming up with the initial concepts and stories and ideas that we're going to write about so for Sun the Skies sort of we knew we wanted to make a game called Sun the Skies we didn't know a huge amount about what that would mean um, what, what that would look like um, so I had to write lots of sort of proposals of what this what uh, what sort of game that could be and what this world would look like to explore and then develop that into documents um, that people can use to base their pitches on and then run big kind of pitching sessions where we'll pitch where we 
break down what each region of the game, what all the stories and locations in it are going to be and kind of running those and then incorporating them all into a, a more final document and getting everyone in the company to kind of provide comments on it and then compiling all those comments back into it. So that uh, I, I feel now a lot of, more of what I do is the um, it's kind of the cement that helps other people write and I still do a f- quite a lot of writing but it's unusual that I'll for Sun of Skies for example uh, it's very unusual that I will write a port um, like a location for the player to explore it's much more likely I'll do the content that um, is sort of the survival content about sort of starvation and managing your supplies and going mad and all that kind of stuff the 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 content that or the trading system uh, and the content that plugs into it and, and those systems that plug everyone el- else's content uh, together and, 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 and incorporate them into the game loops. Do you get to write every day or is it more as every now and then? I'm either write, I think I'm either writing or reviewing every day, yeah, or hearing pictures every day, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. And like, since you've been doing it for a while now, what do you think makes a good narrative director? Oh, God, I wish I knew. Um, uh, I think it's about... There's a couple of things. I think the first of them, um, I wouldn't say I'm particularly great at. This is something I feel I'm always kind of working towards. But it's providing people with a clear vision to inspire their work and so they know how their work's going to fit into the whole, which is quite challenging in our uh, setting because our setting is very kind of broken, complicated and weird. Yeah. Um, and it can be quite difficult for people to know, well, what sort of weirdness fits into this? In the same way that Twin Peaks is a very specific sort of weirdness, our world is a very mm-hmm. sort of specific sort of weirdness as well. And, and lots of kind of fantasy or science fiction ideas don't, don't fit in it without needing tweaking. And the other thing which I think I am better at uh, and certainly enjoy is um, when people pitch an idea, helping them fit it into the setting. Uh, so suggesting that, oh, this is this ties in well with this thing we've got over here, let's incorporate that in. Or that's a duplicate of this thing, let's fold them together. And uh, kind of identifying problems in the story, like if the ending's not working or whatever, and helping to kind of punch that up. And kind of digging, I think this is the key thing, digging for the concept that's exciting them, the thing they really want to write about, identifying what that is, and then kind of pushing that further than they maybe would have thought they could take it, uh, because they're writing to sort of someone else's spec uh, and um, requirements. So often people don't kind of push a story idea as hard as it could go in case it kind of goes too far and breaks one of the rules uh, and ends up not fitting. Um, so a kind of a big part of my job is helping to identify that stuff they're really keen on and then giving it an extra bit of juice to push it that bit further than they originally thought it could go. That's awesome. You need to trust each other a lot more then. And have like a good relationship with all the writers then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And because we work with a lot of uh, uh, quite a kind of range of freelancers, we seek out freelancers who have very different voices than we can provide in house. Uh, that's been very important. Being able to work with like quite a, a wide range of people um, and make sure they're happy and feel that they're doing their best work and feel and feel that they have all the tools they need to do it. That's very important. For instance, in uh, Sunless Sea, would you have like a freelancer come in and take over? just design a whole island or cluster of islands? Yeah, that's like very, that. very common. Give it, a, yeah. give it an internal flavor. Yeah, that's right, because they, they'd normally come in and do one island, because it, it, that fits quite well with how Sunless Sea is laid, is laid out. You've got this mm-hmm. big sea that you sail between, and then each island is this little kind of pocket story for you to play, and they don't have to be 
elaborately interwoven with lots of other islands. So yes, often the, we try to kind of divide the content out into a, a, a satisfying self-contained unit that a, a writer can work on. So that might be a port or it might be um, uh, an NPC companion that they can write. Um, but we have a, a few freelancers who have worked with us so much that we can handle that. We can pass them kind of much more integrated stuff. Uh, we work with Richard Cobbett a lot, who's written many, many things for us. And so we, we can hand him a whole lot of stuff because he has a very good kind of sense of the overall game and game flow. Game flow. I wanted to go back to an earlier point about, um, sure. you know, sort of planning a career as a writer and how much to focus on being a game writer as opposed to just mm. generally wanting to be a writer uh-huh. uh, and how useful that is. Because I do have a lot of people ask me, I want to write for games and what should I do? And d- how long did you want to write for games? And, you know, my in my case, games didn't really exist when I was a kid, so it wasn't an aim of mine. But I did always have a feeling that I think is generally useful, which is the whole thing of if you if you develop your skills as a writer, if you develop skills for story design and, and you're interested in the craft of all that, you really don't know what opportunities are going to be available in the future. But it's such a generally applicable thing. If you're good at it, you know, you're going to be ready to sort of pounce on whatever comes along. And I, when I was a kid, I, you know, I wanted to write books and stories. I thought maybe I would uh, write for movies or TV. And then that all started to seem very overwhelming. But when games came along, I felt there's a click that was like, oh, this was the thing that I was kind of hoping might come along that all my skills would be useful for. And I, I have no doubt there is more of that on the horizon. There's, it, it's kind of a mistake maybe to, I mean, you can't help it when you're, when you're starting out, you want to write for the things that you love. You want to reproduce those and do your own versions of them. But there are things that are going to come out that you can't even visualize that if you just have a solid grounding in storytelling and, and just writing, you will find you, you could be the person who's sort of there in the trenches working out these problems for the, mm. you know, this new medium, whatever the form it is. So to focus too much on, I think if I wanted to write for first person shooters, for instance, like if I were just someone growing up playing Half-Life and this is all I wanted to do, and in some ways, you kind of see that form shriveling up. Um, there's, I mean, there's a lot of the early easy opportunities are gone, and new things have filled in that are exciting in the way that the shooters were in the, the late 90s and early 2000s. So if you focus too much on just one particular form that you love, you're kind of closing yourself off to all these other possibilities where I think it's more about learning what you can from from a particular form and then seeing how you can use that in in new places without, I I guess I'm a little bit story agnostic. Like if you have the skills and you have the interest and you've continued to develop your own skill set, you don't quite need to worry so much about where you're going to use it. It, it, It's more about looking for the opportunity to use it. Maybe somewhere that wasn't obvious to the the people who are already sort of doing the bare bones of the thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. So, I mean, it just as a young person or a, a writer who's kind of looking ahead, you can't really see what, it, say you're going to really kind of hit your peak skill set in 10 years. You don't know what the industry is going to look like. There could be a totally new industry developing in 10 years. 
and and it's kind of being open to that is really important it that i mean that was i kind of stumbled into it but i think it's happening all the time do either of you feel like you hit your peak skill set no (laughs) (laughs) no (laughs) i can definitely feel writing now feels very different than it did however many years ago i started but i don't you never feel comfortable in games either because everything's changes so quickly that you're like oh if i just had time to work longer in this one particular mode i could have gotten really good at it but suddenly all the tools have changed and everything has changed and you're back kind of to uh back i mean a learning curve is great and it's always good to be feeling like you're learning new stuff but at some point it would be nice to go all right i think i've mastered this and you definitely never get that um Uh for me going back to to novels and stuff makes me remember how far i felt i had to go in that and I was nowhere near competing with you know who my heroes were just in writing prose but I could go back to something that was kind of solid and stable and had been the same way for a long time whereas in games it's like oh no the the model changes every time there's an engine update (laughs) (laughs) and that we got to get new tools and uh, you know so you cling pretty hard to your skill set and go well whatever whatever's going to change in the environment at least I could do like some bizarre character who's going to be flexible enough to express whatever is interesting in this new thing. I think your strategies kind of become more general survival strategies and less about it's harder to predict the impact of a new technology on the player, for instance. Mm -hmm. So you just kind of got to go, well, I'm going to keep doing this thing that I do and figure it out for myself. And hopefully the emotional response at the end of all this is going to be, a familiar one like people will laugh or they'll be scared or whatever use, you know using that new set of tools which i i think that is that's like the hyper modern thing like you're still going for the same effects but you're you're going to have a radically different approach <clears throat> you know year to year as the technology changes but you still want people to respond as they as they do to you know any entertainment that in terms of emotion, they want a, you want an emotional response from them. Yeah. Which is why it's important to focus on those, trans, the, like you say, the craft, the transferable skills mm-hmm. of writing. Like if you can take a plot and break that down into chunks that a reader or viewer or player can digest, that is a transferable skill that is in, independent of the form you're writing in. Different forms will have different approaches to it, but having that kind of core skill will give you a, a, a head start in whichever, whatever medium you're writing in. If you've cultivated your brain so you can come up with lots of ideas, that's a useful um, skill that will work whatever the form is you're working in. It might be one reason I started to focus so much on dialogue because mm. I think people will always respond to... Dialogue is kind of always familiar, whatever the medium, whether you're mm. hearing a voice or reading a conversation, there's these things that are just always entertaining about it. And when we were working on voice recording for the Half-Life games and Dota, uh, at some point we realized we were just doing a radio and it's still just as enjoyable. <clears throat> it's enjoyable in any medium to hear, you know, actors doing great characters or reading really colorful text. And uh, that's a, like a real old thing that, you know, people love and you cling to that while everything else is kind of going crazy around you. <laughs> hey, Chris, like you mentioned core skills, are there skill, core skills that you'd want aspiring writers who haven't worked in games yet to have? Or would it really depend on the project? 
Ooh. So I think one of them is, is plotting and being able to break a plot down into beats that people can follow, um, which sounds basic, but is not. It's brutally difficult. It takes a huge amount of work and outlining and revision and, and shuffling stuff around. I think the, uh, a really important thing is being able to look at a story from outside your own kind of perspective of it. When you're writing it, you're on the inside of it. You know how, how it's meant to work. You know how it's meant to come across. But um, I think in particularly, particularly in games where the audience is interacting with the story and will probably be experiencing it at different paces uh, and maybe in different orders and with lots of different um, kind of stimuli going on around it, you really need to be able to look at a story dispassionately from the outside and think, what are people who are not me seeing when they uh, encounter this scene? If they've just uh, hit this scene and they've just had this, uh, I don't know, super intense battle with a, a room full of aliens uh, and they're still kind of winding down from that, is this still going to make sense to them? Uh, or if they've just had um, another separate beat of another story fire just now, are they going to be able to switch gears to um, get a grip with this new scene? And yeah, being able to look at a story from the outside is really crucial and a really hard skill to learn. I think it's very hard to do without uh, kind of publishing something and, and or making something and seeing how people react to it. Yeah. Um, and Fallen London's a good testing ground for that because Fallen London is a, a live web game. We provide, update it every month with content. So you get sort of monthly feedback on stuff you've written, um, which can be very bruising, uh, but it's also very, very valuable and you learn very quickly from it. Mark, is there anything else you'd add to those? I'm probably not a good person to ask about that. With the, the people that I worked with tend to come in with a bunch of skills from working on other games, and I was less of a director. Mm-hmm. For me, it was more just about kind of a way of words, way with words, some kind of style, a strong mm-hmm. sense of style and voice, and, um, you know, a sense of how... I'd say by the time I started working with other writers, it was getting into Dota time, and it was important to kind of hear a variety of approaches because i knew we were going to be doing a bunch of different characters with uh different personalities so there's maybe a ability to do mimicry some kind of background in radio and that sort of thing seemed really helpful but but that was very specific to that particular game which was kind of the last thing that that where i was evaluating other people's skill set based on a very particular you know purpose um I was going to ask, like, well, how would you teach someone the storytelling basics today? I think a lot of that starts really early. I know some writers who got started pretty late. They didn't know they wanted to be a writer. And <clears throat> when they did start writing, they were able to just jump right in with a bunch of life experience. But more my experience is people who have been doing it since they were kids. Um, <clears throat> so it's hard to, it's such a self-directed thing. You spend so many years kind of following your own instincts and intuitions and whatever your obsessions are. I mean, that's definitely what you should do. So it's it's harder to tell people particularly what to do. I mean, there's a few books that I recommend for people who are want to write prose and things that are sort of like work, workshop experiences, like the Clarion workshops, where you, it's more about learning discipline as a writer and to kind of follow your own voice i think i worry the most about 
people who get into writing as part of a team too early in their own development. Like it's really good to have a sense of yourself, your voice, your strengths, and have spent a bunch of time figuring out how to solve problems internally, um, story problems, before you try to plug into a team because it's very easy to get destabilized and only hear everybody else's voices and not be that sure of the thing that you bring to a project. But writers tend to have years and years of working in solitude. Um, so sometimes joining up with the team is just liberating to them. And it's great to have more input and more voices and just not be stuck staring at your own set of limitations, which you, you're, you're used to just feeling stuck with. Sorry, I'm not, not sure if that's answering the question. No, it totally is. Did you have anything you wanted to add, Chris? There's a bunch of books I found um, valuable, but I, most of it, I think, is just practice and getting feedback and kind of getting feedback from people um, uh, from people who don't really care about you. You know, if you show it to your family or your friends or your loved ones, that will affect the feedback uh, you're getting back. And the, the fastest way to learn is um, to, to show work to someone who just doesn't give a crap about you and <laughs> really wants to be entertained by a story. And what you said about being able to handle feedback is hugely important and increasingly important now um, as uh, because people have no shortage of opinions on your work these days. Yeah. Um, and you need to be able to deal with a whole range of them. Uh, I think it's interesting what Mark was saying about um, people having developed their own voice first. I think there's uh, a lot of truth in that. And uh, especially if someone kind of comes to work for uh, us, where we have this kind of, one, currently have this sort of one big setting in which all our games are set, um, that could potentially, yeah, restrict the growth of their own voice if they're immediately kind of coming into a job where seven hours a day they have to write in an established tone uh, and to an established set of rules. We're going to switch subjects now for a second. Um, so, Chris, Fail Better has been praised consistently for its world building for years. What do you think are the keys to doing world building well? And I want to hear from Mark, too, about this after you talk, Chris. I thought about this. Uh, I'm very glad you sent this question in advance. Um, Good. <laughs> the, there's a few things. I think uh, I've written down five things, in fact. Uh, the first one is um, to use diverse and unusual sources um, and um, to use primary rather than secondary sources. Um, I think a lot of... A lot of fiction, especially genre fiction, can look at the genre fiction that preceded it, whereas the genre fiction that preceded it tended to look at primary sources like history or mythology or personal experience. And I think fiction can get, when you're just looking at other genre fiction, your stories can get uh, watered down and kind of increasingly rely on people having a, an understanding of the, uh, the tropes of the genre. Uh, and also your pool of references can get smaller and smaller. So for uh, me, and I think quite a few of us at Fail Better, um, history is a key source that we go to. Two of us are trained historians uh, on the writing team currently, um, and uh, history is basically every story that's ever happened, every screw-up, every ridiculous uh, collusion of circumstances that led to an unexpected outcome. It's all happened at some point um, in bizarre and unusual ways and i think being a decent historian also requires you you're able to take your perspective out of uh, your own time and place and root it in another one and 
open your perspective to uh, seeing the world in a different way uh, as, as the people who lived in it then and there saw it. We use mythology a lot. We use folklore a lot. Um, but we do try to reach further back and wider for our sources. And I think that will make your worlds more real and feel more diverse. The second one is when you're world building, uh, it can be very easy to focus on kind of big details, like what's the map of the world and um, what are the economies like? Focus on kind of big social details. Um, And social details are uh, vital and important, but they, I think, are most powerful when they're looked at from ground level. So thinking about what the world looks like to the people who live in it. So I live near uh, Nottingham, uh, the city of Nottingham, and Nottingham is mostly famous, obviously, for Mr. Robin Hood. But Nottingham is built on sandstone, uh, and sandstone is soft, and so you can tunnel in it easily. So the, and beneath the city, it is riddled with man-made caves uh, that people dug and have used for thousands of years. Um, and they range from, there's a pub called the Old Trip to Jerusalem, which is like the frontage of a pub, but then all the rooms are caves dug into the rock. Um, so wow. you go in through this normal door and you're in these caves, uh, which have kind of ancient sort of 17th century weird ball games on tables in them uh, and stuff. And underneath the, uh, like the main shopping centre, there's this whole set of caves that have been used for smuggling, for tanneries, for um, as bunkers during the war, uh, all this kind of stuff, and also for waste disposal. And they in so there's a big problem in the 1800s, which is where do you put all the poo? Because uh, people make a lot of it, um, and it's got to go somewhere. And uh, it tended to go down into these caves uh, often. But people still needed to. <laughs> there weren't like public conveniences around the place. Um, people didn't have toilets in their homes and people had jobs of work to do. So there was a whole career of people who went round and uh, to do this job, they needed three things. They needed a big coat, a bucket and absolutely no sense of smell because they would go around to people who were working uh, or in their homes and they'd say, do you need to do your business? Uh, and they'd accept like a penny and then they'd put their bucket down in the street and the people would sit on the bucket and then these uh, people would wrap their big cloaks around them, providing them with a <laughs> modicum of privacy uh, while they did a poo. <laughs> and that's the sort of ridiculous detail that is required to make a world work. The, the poo has got to go somewhere. Um, and uh, if you put a detail like that in your world, even though it's insanely outlandish, it makes it make more sense. And it's those little moments that explain how the world functions on a day-to-day basis to the people that live in it are, um, will do more work than having a whole kind of map of how different trade goods pass around um, the, uh, the different countries and stuff. That one took a long time. Sorry, I'll speed this up. Um, the third great. one is um, fragmentary reveals, which is don't do like an opening crawl. Don't do 10,000 years, the Dark Lord Blah conquered the land of Blah. Reveal your world in snippets, in bits and pieces, and it's okay if people don't get the whole point in one go. If you provide them uh, with a bunch of pieces of the puzzle and then they can pit, fit that together, you're still getting the message across and the audience feels clever for having worked it out and they've engaged with the world. They've thought about how the world works in order to fit these things together. And it's not like providing a jigsaw of 10 pieces and you need all 10 pieces. It's more like there are five pieces, but you can make a complete picture with three of them uh, and you kind of overlap the information. And if people can 
talk about that and share the information and swap notes that's great for community building as well and that's another it kind of adds a social dimension to the storytelling which people also love the fourth one is be messy life is messy and weird uh, and sometimes involves people with big cloaks giving you a hug as you do a poo and uh, fictional worlds should be equally as messy and a ridiculous history is this is one long ludicrous series of accidents and convincing worlds should be as well and last of all um a plurality of voices and this is where using a mix of writers comes in um it's very easy to uh, if all of the world building is coming from one mind uh, it's rooted in one person's perception of the world even if that person has consulted lots of primary sources different people will bring different interpretations to those primary sources and will have read different primary sources and we did a, a, a period recently at Falbada where we did a, a several consultation, consultations with different experts on different things and we did one on uh, so the Sun of the Skies is about the Victorian British Empire going into the heavens and colonising the heavens and we got Meg Giant, who wrote um, 80 Days Around the World, to um, come and consult with us on colonialism, specifically in our game. She knows Sun the Skies, she's written a port for it, um, she knows our setting and sort of how we write our stories. So she was able to give incredibly specific advice on uh, how we could address it. And we came out of this three, four hour consultation with just pages of pages full of rich story ideas that we never would have come up with ourselves. So, yeah, those are the five things, I think. Those are great. Mark, do you have any keys to doing world-building well? Uh, well, more of a world-building as storytelling and how you unfold the stuff in a narrative. Um, Chris's point about giving pieces of the puzzle and you don't need to start with a big explanatory lump. I think, again, it has kind of has to do with a lot of the people who started off building games that wanted a story in them were familiar with all the the genre hits, but they weren't really familiar with where those came from. They didn't, they hadn't thought through the process of how you create one of these stories. So in terms of narrative sophistication that develops over time, I think science fiction in games, for instance, is games will have made a big stride in sophistication and natural storytelling when you can start, like a space opera, otherworldly, you know, other planetary game, without that scene of standing on the bridge of a starship just pulling into dock around a planet, which is just, it's one of those, it's like a council chamber scene. It's one of those mm-hmm. things that, it's the first thing somebody thinks of when they're wondering how they introduce a planet. But it's like the last thing that is entertaining, and it's the last thing you should do. I mean, you stand on the bridge of a starship and look at a planet and then everybody talks about that place that they're going to go to soon and then eventually they get there it's just such a stodgy way of starting what ought to be something extremely grand and strange and as far as world building goes it's it's a sledgehammer approach and there's a lot of people who instinctively if you're a writer and you're someone who's kind of churned through all the generic ideas for how you start a science fiction game you're going to avoid that stuff and it's one of the problems with not involving writers and creative people early on in a process Mm. because somebody will already have built the scene on the starship before they think to ask is there a better way to you know open this story Whereas it, it might be the last thing you'd ever think of. The only way I, you would want to do a scene like that is as a, you know, a joke. 
<laughs> that's, the only way I could, that's the only way I can think of doing a scene like that where it actually would be mm. entertaining to me. Um, <clears throat> so I do think you see this a lot where <clears throat> the approach of adding writers to a process somewhere along the line to fix problems. Mm. <clears throat> well, the reason people go to writers who write and are into invested in their stories and their storytelling is because they good writers have found non-obvious ways to do these things that it's the same problem everyone faces how do you start a story it's just if this is your livelihood and this is the thing you're used to doing you're going to have already come up with some clever approaches to that that the that you know the team who's just mainly trying to build a world and hasn't thought about the story aspect they're going to do something that's familiar to them because it feels like oh this is like a real story i've seen this before that's kind of like the last thing you want if you're looking at it from from the writer's point of view so it's just an argument for getting people involved earlier Mm. um i i'm really not i I mean world building kind of stuff is not one of my strengths and i tended to contrast myself with other writers who i tend to just jump right in the middle of something and worry about the stuff afterward and if i'm lucky to be paired up with somebody who's good at the world building aspect then that, then we'll pull back and start to flesh those pieces in on half-life particularly it wasn't there were so many different strengths of other people on the team that filled in my particular deficiencies and i could add stuff to what they were doing and i would have just a crazy idea that it would make no sense on its own but if i brought it to this very logical methodical level designer by the time they've finished building out that idea, it makes sense in a way that my original little spark uh, didn't make any kind of logical sense. So across the course of a team, you can sometimes acquire something that looks like, um, you know, oh, there's a lot of method to this. They must have really worked this out rigorously, which is why I'm still getting letters, you know, almost 20 years later about things that we made up in an afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> that I'm expected to defend the consistency of, of the idea. It's like, well, we were really just sitting around laughing when we came up with this one. I don't know. I, I, there's not a lot of the depth in there is all it's intentional for things to have depth. You know, everything is connected down below. So if you're working from general sort of sense of theme and mystery mm. and and you're true to what your sources and inspiration are, then there's connections there you don't have to be explicit about. You, feel, you know that there is a creator and you know there's stuff that people are going to find when they start looking at it but to expect the the authors of these things to explain all the bits and pieces and how they fit together sometimes you just find you know you if you're talking to me you'll just get a blank look because <laughs> like well I, stuff is I know that stuff is there I could feel that the connections are there but uh, I had never really delved deeper than that into them you in the revision process a lot of times you notice connections that were there from the start that you're like, oh, how mm-hmm. did how did I not see this? And then you can set things off a little bit and embellish them and pull out the the details that that suggest even more depth. But um, yeah, I haven't. Every time I've sat down to try to build a world before I build the story that it's in, I mean, worlds are vast, and any number of stories. Mm-hmm you can arbitrarily pick a story to tell about them, but finding the the thing that expresses sort of the essential story of this world. And this is the ones, if you're only going to tell one story in the setting, what would that story be? I would tend to start with, well, the story and the world kind of arise together. Like you have a sense of a place or a, 
an event, an action happening that it could only happen in a particular kind of world. And then that suggests the worlds that you need to build. And from there, you, you know, it's a little bit here, a little bit there. What I find lately writing is I will see just enough of a story to get me to like a ledge. And from that ledge, I can see a little bit more of the landscape just ahead. And then I can go out into that. And then I see a little bit more of the terrain, a little bit more. Some people need to have the whole map in place before they can set out. But I've never quite been able to work that way. So there's definitely were times in like design discussions where people wanted to know what, well, what's the overall plan here? And I'm like, well, hopefully we will get through a first version of it and then we can, then we can start to prune and edit and figure out what the core things are in the story. But the first time through, we're just going to kind of feel our way. And I think as I got better at working with a team of people, we all kind of agreed it was great to have at least an end goal. And then you can, um, for instance, the Citadel, in Half-Life 2, the whole game gets sort of organized around the Citadel. And there was really nothing like that in Half-Life 1. And you can see that as definitely as a team learning process where Mm. we realized, oh, the end of this first game was not satisfying because you haven't been working toward it the whole time. You don't even know it's going to end here. Then we went a little bit overboard the second time around because we definitely wanted to try out this method where you put a physical goal right in the on the horizon from the beginning and then you spend the whole game getting there and when you get there, there's a sense of completion. Um, yeah. So much more satisfying and people know they're pretty much at the end when they get there. So... And that was as much a, a team learning process as, as a personal one and figure out what works in this weird visual medium. But to, to that extent, you're organizing the world and building your world around a thing that is a game goal as much as anything else, which when you're designing a game, it kind of makes sense. I, I think it's fine for your world to be made entirely of game goals. I, I always point at... Um, Wind Waker is just a great example of that. Like mm. every geographical feature of the world is a piece of the game and they're very satisfying to explore because they're, you know, you're playing the game in all these senses. You're not just going to a landscape, to an area to get a view. You're also going there to, to do a little piece of the, the mechanic of the game and where those things fuse, whether I, I'm, I'm sure this applies in text as well, where the, mechanism of the game fuses with the experience of playing it then it's kind of the peak of narrative and story uh mm. design for me in a game i want to backtrack like can you give an example of coming up with something that seemed ridiculous on its own but then when it was given to like a level designer or someone else on the team they were able to make it work as a whole with the whole story or with the whole game one comes to mind that wasn't even my idea, uh, but I kind of watched the whole thing work. And it's it's partly also about learning to trust your teammates and figure out what different people's strengths are. When we were doing episode one and Dog picks up the van and throws it across the chasm to the Citadel at the very beginning, this is an insane piece of storytelling and cinema and, and, and everything else. And when 
Bill Fletcher, who is an animator and heavily involved in the design of all the characters, sort of the early from the early days of those characters. He knew the characters really well. He knew the kind of what the world would tolerate in some ways better than I did because he came up with this idea and I thought it was totally insane. Like, <laughs> like and it, I mean, laughably insane. But I had kind of also learned that his craziest ideas really were awesome if you implemented them. <clears throat> so he could, he could see it better than I could. And in, in a lot of ways, he was the one responsible for building it. But again, I, because I kind of am, I think, more in leaps than logic, uh, there was a level, like this level designer, Randy Lundeen, who was at Valve before I got there. And Randy was very methodical about stuff and built beautiful things and thought them through carefully. And I know I could just have a conversation with Randy where I'd throw out a crazy idea and he'd go off and build it. I'm not really coming up with any great ideas, uh, good examples of that right now. But <laughs> but that thing where a dog throws the van is was always one of those where I go, I tell people like, trust these crazy instincts of some of your, you know, your coworkers. They, these are the ones that if nobody else could have thought of it, this is going to be possibly, you know, one of the most memorable moments in the game because you all reacted to it that way. Like, I've never heard anything like this. I don't, why, how could this happen? It's like, that's kind of what you want. If you're just going from pedestrian, obvious things that like, okay, I see how this flows logically from this your thing will make sense, but it's not necessarily going to just catch fire and and really make a vivid impression on people. Like something that's jarring and surprising and and risky on that level, it's sometimes worth doing that for its own sake, just to keep surprising people with that sense of oh, I didn't know this was possible. Plus, you're making a game. It's even within the limits of your game, you can kind of put the framework at risk every now and then. In turn, like you have the ability to. To, to stretch in a few places in a way we don't, you know, in, in reality, crazy stuff happens all the time. Uh, the, the ironic thing is some, in art, people tend to be a little more cautious about, oh, this is unbelievable. Well, so much stuff in your day-to-day life, if you step back from it, is unbelievable. And mm-hmm. if your games and your, your art doesn't reflect that level of surprise, then it's really, in some ways, less believable as human experience. So... I don't know. I, there's some lessons there about just trusting what sounds crazy. At least try it. Uh, you'll. <laughs> <laughs> I think the, what you said about um, that thing of if you're writing science fiction and you you go to the, you you've got a new planet coming up and you go immediately to that scene of like on the bridge mm-hmm. approaching the planet that uh, and you you describe that as um, that's like the first thing you think of in that yeah. situation when you're trying to write that and I think avoid your first thoughts it's probably good um world building and general storytelling mm-hmm. advice because your first unless thoughts your first are probably thought, the easy ones unless they're totally insane and then yeah like, there's, <laughs> there's some first thoughts that you have that you immediately dismiss as impossible but if they keep coming back to you maybe they're good yeah <laughs> yeah um fail betters games often deal in mystery and ambiguity as did the half-life games to a certain degree how do you balance having the air of mystery for players that keeps them engaged with knowing when to provide answers or clues so that players don't feel like they're being strung along or eventually lose interest? Yeah, no, with Half-Life it was easy f- because the the game itself is linear and it's going to keep moving. And if, if you keep shooting your gun and wading into the monsters and kind of, be- if you're being pulled forward by the 
the geometry of the game. Like I always felt like I could totally count on that and we could put all this other stuff in there that can be inexplicable or is just there for color or atmosphere or specifically just to be mysterious. It was never going to derail that core, you know, the the momentum of the core game was just going to keep moving. So I just had, I kind of had ultimate faith in how playable the game was. And I felt if all that was working and there was no question it worked pretty well, then the story stuff and that it was all kind of icing. Like in Half-Life kind of had a principle that you ought to be able to turn off the sound and in every case know exactly where to go and what to do and mm-hmm. be able to play the game is just a silent experience. Once we started having characters who spoke and the expectation of more dialogue and scenes, then that, that was great. In some ways, in others, it made me start to worry about how much the game communicated itself silently. So we started to worry about things like, well, if we have a character who needs to come and explain to you how to read a map so that you can get to the next area, has to explain to you how to solve a puzzle so that you can proceed, then it puts the wrong kind of weight on what characters can be in a world and what the story Mm -hmm. needs to be about. Like the story in that game is always get where you're going as quickly as possible that's what suits the the style of the gameplay but we kept you know having little narrative things where it's like oh, let's stick around in this area and collect all the objects so, which is you know totally in, in contradicting the kind of story we're trying to tell so i think you see there's some tension b- between those things and that's not even the quality of mystery that you're asking about and and adding that kind of depth to the the narrative i don't think any of that slows it down if the game itself is pulling you along uh, but at the same time i wouldn't rely on those things to pull you forward we were designing a very different kind of game than than a than a narrative game i think it was it was really an action game i think it's a lot harder if you're doing something like an rpg where you're introducing a mystery and your goal as a player is to care about this enough that you want to solve it by how does that game pull you forward to solve the mystery and understand the world you're in? That kind of game I enjoy, but it's not the kind of game that I ever actually worked on. What about you, Chris? I think that was really interesting. Sorry, that was really interesting because I think the our games aren't linear, but I think what Mark said there was the approach that we use, that we'll have a mystery that spans a story. And the important thing is that the player understands the where and the what and the why of the next step but they don't have to know about the steps beyond that so as long as at any point they know where they should be going next and why they would be going there that's enough that's the thing that draws them on that gives them the solid kind of footing to make that leap of faith to follow the the wherever the mystery is taking them so you have to balance pacing out the mystery with a uh, very clear kind of step-by-step approach to what's next, I think. And the, I guess the other technique we use is we seed a bunch of mysteries into our games where you don't have to answer those mysteries to understand or enjoy the game. They just add depth or a different dimension to it, even to the point where we're kind of happy if we don't answer some of those mysteries um, and there's no definitive answer in the game. Um, a, a couple of those leave kind of space for people to um, speculate and discuss and that's fun um we always try to have 
an idea to internally know what the answer is. And because we have kind of multiple games set in this world, we, we, can, we may always get to exploring that in a different game or in an expansion or whatever. Uh, there's a couple of times where we've written a mystery and not known what the answer is, and it has always bitten us in the ass, always caused pain and suffering. So we try to avoid it now. For both of you, what running mistake or failure have you learned the most from? I've got a couple of answers to this, I think. One is that um, I've had some stories where I've written and they haven't received a great reception. You know, you write something and you think, oh, that's good, I'm proud of that, and you release it and people are, yeah, or, oh, this is terrible. And that's always really painful, um, but you learn a huge amount from it. And sometimes you learn useful kind of actionable things that you can use to improve your next story. And sometimes the information you learn is that sometimes people approach their stories with their particular kind of fascinations and obsessions in mind and you can't predict that <laughs> and you can't necessarily you can't cater for all of it and you just have to be happy that some people aren't going to like everything you do uh, and deal with it i wrote one story in fallen london uh, we had we have this victorian setting and we had this kind of young gentleman's club in it called the young stags which stags who were very kind of jeeves and worcester and always up to larks and and frolics and and pulling pranks and stuff and internally that never sat well with us that we had this quite dark cynical world uh but then we had this jolly bunch of toffs uh, who were totally harmless and lovely uh, running around doing japes all over the place so i wrote a story where it turns out that they hold a lottery each year their their their, their leader steps down for like one day, uh, one week each year they hold a lottery amongst the populace and whoever wins the lottery gets to be their leader for a week and kind of command the young stags for a week and then at the end of that week they eat them <laughs> um, and uh, it's like this kind of ritual uh, it's this, this, this whole ritual thing there's a whole bunch of law that tied into it but, um, and that, that fit to us with the, the world that, and it's, it, it fit our kind of concept that you can't trust anything in this world there's, there's kind of dark secrets behind every corner and you know it said the rich will eat you which is a, <laughs> a, a, <laughs> you know, a, this, the, 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 the wealthy in Victorian uh, London were not kindly people they were wealthy <laughs> on the backs of a vast oppressed populace but there were it turned out there were players who really loved this club because they were the one bright light in, um, in the world and now we had tainted them and turned them into this awful cannibalistic uh, cult and they were really upset with me <laughs> um, uh, and I think it was still the right idea to tell that story i think i would have i would have told it in a different way if i'd realized what an impact it would have had on a bunch of people uh yeah <laughs> um and the other one is um when we were writing Submariner, which was an expansion to sunless sea this added a whole new bunch of underwater ports uh and we had this kind of skeletal story in place for it about these seven people that had tried to achieve immortality and we'd established these characters and we'd shared the kind of rough story of these characters with all the writers who worked on the game and encouraged them to use these characters in their ports so there's one in each port but it turned out as people were writing their ports that they weren't really digging into the stories of these characters these characters would just appear in kind of a tangential way and it wouldn't address their backstory because reasonably enough writers were nervous about stepping on our toes and when this became clear i kind of made a a a foolish narrative direction decision and said okay don't worry you people you folk write whatever stories you want to write and at the end i'll write a big story that ties all these characters together and explains the background um so you go, you just go nuts and we'll sort it out in post and they did and then it came time to write that story 
And I sat down and I looked at the first character I had to incorporate and I realised I had to write a story that would have to work whether this character was A, alive, B, dead, or C, a moth. And that was very difficult. And it took me forever to write this story in such a way that it covered all the possible outcomes that the other writers had set up. And uh, it took so much time to address all those outcomes that I had to truncate the ending a whole bunch uh, and, and sacrifice some other aspects of the story that would have strengthened it. So yeah, don't do that. <laughs> never do that. Never, never, never say I will. Fi- I will. I will put. I will staple the story on after the fact. That's a really bad way to do it. Man, Mark, do you have any? Uh, probably not that I should go into. <laughs> <laughs> I have. No- I think of no- nothing but failures. So um, the edu- it's the educational aspect that I'm flailing for. So this is for both of you then. For Mark. Did your writing process change as you were working through Valve, and is it different now? And Chris, did your writing process change as you moved through your different job titles? It was totally different, just because it was a like a team effort, and a lot of what I did was not writing at all. I I think when I would be working on a story on my own, I would just sit down and write. That was how I worked out the story was by writing, mm. but. You know, at, at Valve, a lot of the writing or the story design I did didn't, didn't have anything to do with writing. It was more <clears throat> learning tools that, that other disciplines used and trying to look at those in ways that were narrative and, and discussing stuff with other, you know, other people I hadn't really thought of their tools in this term in, in this way before. So level designers thinking of their architecture that they're building as you know, a way of guiding you through an experience instead of just a cool room on its own. And I think as I, so when I started Valve, there was very little writing. I did a lot of, you know, descriptive stuff and describing monsters and describing worlds and trying to describe scenes. Very little that went into the game. But, uh, you know, with time, our scripts got longer and dialogue got longer. And that was probably more me sitting in a room doing doing my own writing and then directing actors uh in voice sessions and such because at that point that seemed like the team was kind of of the people building the world was starting to take off more on its own so i was less closely involved with the with some of that day-to-day and more getting into my own uh world of the script but again there's when a game is huge at least a game without that's not all a lot of text um the script is pretty finite and there's there's only so much work you need to put into that it's more about talking through how all the pieces of this thing fit together mm-hmm. i it was less about the process evolving and more that as the games changed the the type of game changed i had to um sc- scramble to keep up with them to see what was the what's the appropriate kind of writing and input that the game would need mm-hmm as as the nature of the game changed because definitely building um half-life 2 and into the episodes was very different um experience than building half-life 1 just in terms of the things that you wanted to add to support that so that it's kind of drawing on different skills i mean there's very little in the way of dialogue in the first game and not really any characters whereas as as these things became more fleshed out in the world that's kind of where more of my energy went Mm-hmm. Chris, what about your process? I certainly feel my process has developed a lot in that time uh, and kind of got more effective 
I've sort of figured out what works for me uh, a lot more. Um, like I've taken, I throw away a lot more now than I used to. I'm much happier to throw a bunch of ideas down on a page and then throw chunks of them away and pick the best one. Whereas I previously I used to uh, just try and think of one good idea rather than thinking up a bunch and then exploring them and, and chucking them. And I've found that that switching mediums is, is very effective for me. So it used to be that I'd type directly into our content management system uh, and work directly on the screen. And now I find that if I do a first draft on paper, um, I can I won't edit it as much as I'm writing. And I kind of give myself permission to write absolute crap on that first draft and just get something down. And then when I transfer that into the CMS, then I'll give it a pass over and, uh, uh, and revise it a huge amount. Um, but I've got some distance from it then. But that initial first draft on paper, and I've kind of settled on like a very specific pen, type of pen, and a very specific <laughs> type of notebook, so that the actual physical act of writing is kind of physically pleasurable, uh, and it feels good to put the words on the page, which helps me distract me from the fact that the words are terrible on that first draft. So there's stuff like that. But I think the main thing that's changed as a result of my role is when I was a staff writer, I would be focused very much on this one bit of content I was writing, this one story and making it, pushing it as far as I can. And now I'm much more aware of how it will have to fit into the whole game. So if we're talking about Sun of Sea or Sun of Skies and someone's writing a port and they write a very complex, demanding port, I am now much more, I will now tend to judge it on what can we expect of the player when they reach this, can we demand this level of complexity from the player at this point? And if you've got one port that's super com- complicated, that's okay. But we've got 30 ports in the game. So if half or all of them are really complicated, what you have is a massive, incomprehensible spaghetti-like morass that uh, the player can't get any foothold on. And you're expecting them to keep the work of a bunch of different writers all in their heads, kind of uh, present and active at the surface the whole time. So, yeah, thinking much more about where does this story fit in the game? How much of the player's attention can I demand? How much of the player's attention can I spend on this? It's a finite resource. Uh, and how much can I spend on this without breaking the whole lot? Awesome. And this might be our last question. I want to go backtrack to something that Mark had said earlier about player literacy. Do either of you think that developers should have expectations for the players who play their games? By that, I mean expecting players to have a certain literacy or knowledge of a subject. Because I can see the argument going both ways with expecting literacy means you have a shorthand and not have to explain things as much. But that also means other players may be confused or feel left out if they don't have that literacy. Well, if you're talking about something like familiarity with sort of cliches and icons, which has been, at least in science fiction games, I think that's part of the stock and trade and there's a big argument to use those things you use them to telegraph meaning and then you flip them on their head as quickly as possible so everybody knows the world that they're in it's sort of a cinematic approach there's a you know big argument to use you know these iconic images and then do your original thing to those but to assume knowledge beyond that sort of beyond the shared pop culture thing i seems like there are definitely studios that do assume that people have a certain base level of um, literacy and familiarity with kind of obscure things. And they enjoy tailoring their games for uh, like a highly literate 
audience, even if you're just saying game literate, like uh, people who play a lot of less of the AAA titles and more obscure and interesting mm-hmm. kind of yeah. uh, psychologically nuanced kind of things. I mean, that's a whole... There's definitely people making games just for this for this crowd crowd of gamers. I would say that probably has something to do with, you know, your budget. <laughs> <laughs> How much you expect to get back from it. I love the sound of that. Like, I would love to have a game that was... I like that feeling when I'm playing a game that's like, wow, this was this is made for me. Like, who else is going to get off on this particular obscure aspect of, you know, some byway of history or something but definitely the stuff that i worked on seemed like we were trying to assume no advanced knowledge other than you've seen all the usual movies and you know read the usual books mm-hmm. kind of go from there How about you chris uh, i think this is an interesting one it's we we require that the players do a lot of reading a whole lot of reading and um we are we're not shy about flexing our vocabulary muscles and we'll have characters called things like the vituperative classicist um, <laughs> and stuff. And I, I don't know what vituperative means. I didn't write that one. But um, there is a, we find that players quite enjoy that. And um, I was watching a streamer. I watch quite a lot of streamers play our games because it's a great way to see how someone who doesn't, has never encountered your game before interacts with it. And I was watching a really interesting streamer play our games. And he had this, uh, some website open where every time he encountered a word he didn't know how to pronounce, he would say it to this website and it would repeat the pronunciation back in a robot voice and tell him how to pronounce it. Um, And people will go and kind of look up words they don't understand and stuff. And we've always found that we don't try to write down. We trust our players to want to engage with language and to have a love of language, I think. And I guess we've now been doing this for long enough that we're fairly confident that that's kind of the a pretty defining characteristic of our fan base is that they love language and playing with language. So it can be, it can be a selling point, but we uh, actually selling kind of the game mechanics to people is a constant struggle uh, for us. And is really difficult uh, and explaining exactly what's going on without bombarding people with information. That's really tough. Um, but I'm always amazed at what players will put up with. Like any Japanese role-playing game has, ludicrously baroque systems and numbers underlying you know how the damage works and armor works and all that kind of stuff same with any mmo if you ever want to go mad quickly take a look at how world of warcraft uh damage and armor stats interact uh because it's terrifying <laughs> um mm. but world of warcraft had millions of players and you know what well, uh that's final fantasy sold millions and millions of copies so if the story or the setting or other stuff is compelling enough uh, people are happy being lost in certain areas as long as they're enthralled by others. I think it's a good note to end on then. So that's it for the show. Uh, where can people find you two on the internet? Like on Twitter or website or anything? Uh, MarkLaidlaw.com is my almost never updated website. I've got a little blog there and then I think I've got an author Facebook page which just reproduces stuff from the blog. I'm off Twitter at this point, so... Good for you. Sort of a, <laughs> a friend of mine is holding my Twitter account in a blind trust so that I can't, <laughs> I can't tweet. I can't read it. Uh, if I ever need to put anything important on there, I, he will do it for me. <laughs> it's probably better that way. That's very sensible. <laughs> I'm at CH Gardiner on Twitter. Gardiner with an I. Um, yeah, that's my main place, I guess. 
And you can find this podcast at ScriptLockCast on Twitter. And yeah, that's it. Thank you both for coming on the show. Thank you so much, much for having me.